0: ...a date which will live in infamy. See, Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Garara River. One the 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic team... ...so great for the breeder in America. So calm and sharpness <laughs> at the Schitzel. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in I say one million Jewish children who were made to become Musa. Adonavecho Whoever heard such beautiful words Adonavecho Talmud It is never too little it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish history soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Welcome, everyone to Jewish history soundbites. This is Yehudi Gabur with another episode of Jewish history soundbites, and this episode is dedicated by David Friedlander in honor of his great aunt Sarah Stein, Sarah Shalom who was recently Nefteris on the 23rd of Teves in South Africa. Sarah was a pillar of the Greek Rhodes Sephardic community of Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia. This is a big loss for the Rhodes community, and she will be greatly missed by her extended family all over the world. So before we get into the history of the very interesting story and important Jewish community of Rhodes, uh, I just want to read one or two letters from... Recent episode we had on the Rayats, the Free Rebbe, the previous Rebbe of Chabad, who in his escape, his miraculous escape from Nazi-occupied Poland to the United States, and it generated a lot of feedback, some very um, interesting uh, letters. So I'm just going to read, just uh, choose one or two of them. Um, Here's one. You mentioned how there wasn't such a large Chabad presence in the United States at the time. Reb Arye Leib Aronin was the chief rabbi in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. From 1902 until 1925, he was a chassid of the Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, and led a sizable Jewish community in Sheboygan, which had three Orthodox shuls at the time. From what I gather, it was a large Chabad community. I even read that they petitioned the Rayats to set up his court and establish it in Wisconsin. If you check the sponsorship pages of Reb Chaim Noe's Sefer of Shi'ure Torah, at least the copy that I saw, you'll see a dedication page thanking the Holman family of Sheboygan. Additionally, my great uncle was the president of the Chabad shul in Chicago when the Rayats visited in the 1920s. So it would seem that, at least in the Midwest, there was a sizable Chabad community at the turn of the century. Um, that's, that's that letter, and that is fascinating. I had never heard of that, and uh, that's, that's great. It's a, a very, it seems like a very interesting story, and perhaps uh, it's worth exploring further. Another um, astute listener pointed out that I had mentioned Rabbi Israel Jacobson's uh, cables, and his family had published it, it was not published a few years ago. It was actually published two decades ago. In other words, uh, those cables and that whole flurry of correspondence which uh, enabled his Hasidim in the United States and Rabor Dubin in Latvia to arrange and lobby the various governments to get the Rayats out. It was already published a long time ago and it was printed well before the Riggs uh, book that I mentioned uh, that was published. So Rabbi Jacobson's uh, um, correspondence was already out there for a while. Um, we'll leave that for now. We'll move on to Rhodes, the Rhodes Jewish community. So first of all, where what is Rhodes? Where is it? Um, I had to figure it out uh, at one point. So it's in the it's a Mediterranean island. It's strategically located. It's a very important place in in world history. It's right off the coast of Turkey, not far from Israel actually, um, but it's officially part of a huge group of of Greek islands, um, and it's at the further end, and one of the larger islands, uh, at different times in history, is under the control of Greece, uh, Ottoman Turkey at one point, later on in Italy, uh, and these power struggles and the different uh, rulers of the island would have a decisive influence on either the growth or decline of the Jewish community of Rhodes. Um, Rhodes, is, is it's, it's really rhodus in, in, in Greek, all Greek words, of course, and in an us, right? We know that uh, the Roman emperor Titus or Titus uh, destroyed the uh, second Besamictus, and Aspasionus or Vespasian in English was his father. You know, Hordus, the Herod in English was the, the famous uh, um, king appointed. We have the uh, great Tana, Somchus. Um, so he had a Greek name also. The Roman aristocracy in the Roman Empire used Greek as a language. It was only the commoners that used Latin. So the names of the of the uh, of the aristocrats and emperors were always in Greek. Um, and of course, many Jews used Greek names uh, as well. By the way, in the, in the Middle Ages, also very interesting, uh, totally unrelated to the topic. In England, in the Middle Ages, commoners were the only ones who used English. The aristocracy. Still used French because there was the Norman French, the Battle of Hastings, uh, William the Conqueror, who had, who had, uh, invaded England, the last successful invasion of England. So it was, the aristocracy was still primarily French. Um, okay. That's, that's a, a random tidbit that you'll probably never need to know. Either way, um, Let's get back to Rhodes. Rhodes is named; it, it, it's it's named for it's called the Island of Roses in, in, in ancient Greek, and that's where the name comes from. It's, um, it's uh, in fact, Rhode Island is is, is named for it in the United States. So there you have a nice uh, connection there. Um, and it's also ironic, which hopefully we'll get to later on in this episode. It's ironic that Jews from Rhodes. Uh, settled later on, many of them, em- when they emigrated from the island, they, they, many of them settled in Rhodesia, in, in Africa, which is a whole story, and I hope to get to it as part of this uh, episode. It wasn't only Jews from Rhodes, it was Jews from other countries as well. Uh, Rhodesia has nothing to do with Rhodes. It's named for Cecil Rhodes, who is a British imperialist, and it's not related, it's purely coincidental. So that's uh, just uh, an interesting coincidence. I actually interviewed a Jew from Rhodes who was born and raised there, grew up there in the 1930s. Very rare. Uh, There's almost no Jews alive today who were born in Rhodes. Um, It was a community that was almost entirely wiped out during the Holocaust, uh, which we'll get to. And he described his growing up in Rhodes, and he mentioned how he got out on a on a ship that was making illegal immigration to Palestine at the time, and the boat went on fire, and they had to stop at another island, and they, a whole interesting story. Either way, that was an interview that I conducted, um, a fascinating individual, and that was a Rhodes Jew. I'd never met a Rhodes Jew before or since, meaning a someone who was actually uh, born there. But, but there, it's a, there are prominent descendants of the Rhodes Jewish community. In fact, Rabbi Mark Angel of Seattle, who's of course in Rabbi in New York City, but originates from Seattle, where many, many Rhodes Jews, I, I discussed on the Seattle City episode last, uh, last summer about how many Jews from Rhodes settled in Seattle of all places, many in Rhodesia and many in Seattle. That's the two, uh, attractive places for Rhodes Jews. And, um, Rabbi Mark Angel, uh, grew up in, in Seattle into a, Family of Jews from Rhodes, and he wrote the definitive book on Rhodes Jewish history. Um, so that's uh, that's an important part of the story as well. Either way, um, the there's it's, it's an ancient uh, Jewish community. It's around for, forever. It's for probably a couple of thousand years. It was, but it was um, it grew like most Jewish communities in the Mediterranean basin and the Ottoman Empire. They grew. Uh, significantly after the Spanish expulsion of the Sephardic Jewish exiles, where the, the diaspora of, of a Sephardic Jewry spread around the world. So they flooded the uh, areas of the Ottoman Empire, which is one of the only places in the world that actually welcomed them in. Um, so the expulsion took place in 1492, and Suleiman the Magnificent, the uh, emperor of the Ottoman Empire, conquers the island in 1522. The Jews actually had been expelled from the island earlier by its earlier rulers, and he welcomed them back. And like the other places that he conquered, uh, it was good for both commerce as well as Jewish settlement. So the, the significant Jewish settlement, then it's, it becomes predominantly a Sephardic community, which it had not been until that time, but it, it always retains a little bit of its own identity, a little bit of uniqueness. It's not, it, it was never exactly like the mainstream Sephardic communities in other areas. Um Jewish community flourishes during that time, really for hundreds of years under the Ottoman Empire. One of the more interesting areas of business that the Jews dominated was the sponge trade. You know, before, there was artificial sponges, so you had a, real sponges were in the ocean, in an island place in the Mediterranean, so it was the center of the sponge trade. And Jews uh, were in, involved in every aspect of the trade, from divers to the the... The you know buyers and sellers and exporters to Europe to mainland Europe. You had to hunt for the sponges. You went with little spears and you had to hold your breath and go down into the water and hunt for sponges. And they would uh, you know try to get a sponges and try not to get caught by an octopus once you're down there, which was a, one of the risks of the uh, of the business. And the um, and the Jews uh, were were very much involved. They they kind of dominated the sponge trade. A lot of trade with England and other countries in Europe of, of sponges. Um, They're involved in commerce as befitting Jews in every place in the world, as well as its uh, st- the strategic location in the Ottoman Empire. Um, They're also involved in metal, medicine, textiles, and believe it or not, the Jews of Rose were also involved in the weapons industry, including production. <laughs> weapons production. I don't know how many Jewish communities in the world at the time were involved in weapons production. Um, one of the main sto- major stories that rocked the Rhodes Jewish community during the 19th century was the infamous Rhodes blood libel of 1840, which was the same year as the Damascus blood libel, um, which took all the attention it was the main the main story that year. Um, but uh, and I discussed it when I had a we did an episode on the Damascus blood libel. But here's the opportunity to speak about the Rhodes blood libel. Uh, there was a a uh, there, you have to understand the religious divide in in uh, Rhodes during the 19th century and for many centuries was quite unique um, for the Ottoman Empire and perhaps for the world. It's not many places that had this this divide. The majority on the island were Greek Orthodox Christians. So a Christian majority in Ottoman areas was not completely unique because the Ottoman Empire at its peak had many mainland European possessions. And therefore, in those countries, there was a, in the Balkans and other areas of Europe, they had a, there was a Christian majority. So that in itself is not so surprising. So here there's a Greek Orthodox Christian majority, but there was a very large Jewish minority and the, and the Jews were the second largest. Religious ethnic uh, uh, community there. And the Muslims were a small minority. So you have majority Christian, large minority Jews, and a small Muslim minority. But who's in charge? The Ottomans are in charge. So the Ottomans are Muslim. So it's a very interesting situation. So in February of 1840, a Greek child, Christian child, goes missing. And immediately there's a suspicion that it's Jews had kidnapped him for, for ritual murder. And there's several Jews who are arrested. The Greek Christians on the island were backed by the European consuls, the local European consuls. England, France, Sweden, and Greece. This is the mid-1800s, right? There's emancipation for the Jews of France since the French Revolution. And England is considered the the light of liberalism in Europe, and and, and Sweden as well. And, And here their consuls are the ones promoting... The blood libel. This is not the Middle Ages. This is 1840. Remember, England is the place where the first blood libel in history took place in, in Norwich, in, in the I think the 12th century, if I'm not mistaken, and um, and uh, the Ottoman governor at the time of 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 uh, Rose was Yusuf Pasha, and he breaks a long-standing Ottoman tradition from the time of Suleiman the Magnificent. And he supports the allegations. The Ottoman Empire, for the most part, at least the ruling establishment, the governors, the the government, uh, didn't usually dismiss these type of allegations when the Greek uh, Christians around uh, the empire, around Asia Minor, brought them up. And here Yusuf Pasha supports the allegations. However, the religious leader, the Muslim religious leader, the Qadi, supported the Jews. And he said, "It's it's it's ridiculous. This is a, the Jews don't do ritual murder. So here you have the Muslim Qadi is supporting the Jews, and the English consul, the British consul, is supporting the allegation of ritual murder. So when we talk about who's enlightened in the nineteenth century and who's modern and progress and science and 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 all that, and usually we would think that the British are the ones who are enlightened." and, the, and uh, the, the, the backward Muslims of the Middle East perhaps were very unenlightened, and here we have a very interesting situation where it's just the opposite as far as the Jewish community is concerned. So around Purim time, the Jewish quarter is sealed off. Uh, the Muslim guards who are, are there to you know, ensure the blockade, they actually smuggle in food. Uh, to the Jews inside the Jewish quarter, believing in their innocence. Uh, The consuls are present. These European consuls are present by the interrogations of the arrested Jews and encourage their torture and beatings to extract a confession. They also arrest the rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Yaakov Yisrael, of the famous Yisrael family, who is for generations rabbis in Rhodes. Hopefully I'll get more to that soon. And the British consul insists that the Jews are guilty, while, um, while the Kadhi iniz- insisted on their innocence. So after a 12-day blockade, the Jewish quarter is opened, and they assume that it's all over. But by that time, the Damascus blood libel was big, was big, big news, was world news. And that influences the consuls to pursue the Jewish guilt, especially the British one, to pressure the local governor to make further arrests and to torture the rabbi, Mr. Rabbi Chaim Yaakov Yisrael, was hung by a hook for two days to get a confession out of him, but he did not confess and he was ultimately released. So the Jewish community smuggled out a letter to the Jewish community in the capital of the empire in Constantinople, who in turn sent word to the Jewish communities of Vienna and London. In Vienna, Solomon Rothschild, by that time I think he was Solomon von Rothschild, I think he already had a title, the wealthy banker of the Rothschild family, is very close with the Chancellor of Austria, of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, Austrian Empire at that time, and the famous Austrian diplomat Clemens Wenzel von Metternich. And he was able to influence him to get involved. The British community, Jewish community did so as well, and eventually public opinion was swayed and voices started to be heard in Constantinople to try to influence the Sultan to intervene. By April, an investigation was opened But in the meantime, the local Greeks on Rhodes were beating up Jews in the streets, in the streets of Rhodes. After several months of deliberations, the court in Constantinople acquitted the Jewish community of all charges. And not only that, but they fired Yusuf Pasha from his position as governor as a result, because he had made these false allegations. So that uh, changed things a bit. As a result of both the Damascus and the Rhodes blood libels, but more so the Rhodes blood libel, which... When I described the uh, Damascus blood libel, uh, the, one of the parts of the components of that story was that it was Damascus was not under direct Ottoman rule at the time. It was under the control of Muhammad Ali of Egypt. Um, but here Rhodes was under direct Ottoman jurisdiction. So it was more because of the Rhodes blood libel. So Moses Montefiore was able to arrange for a firman, a special proclamation to be issued by the sultan of the Ottoman Empire, condemning all accusations of ritual murder charges by um, you know for the future in any, against the the Jews in the future, if the Fuhrer even had an audience with the Sultan himself, and the Firman was issued in November of 1840. So the like I said, the um, Rhodes Jewish community, despite the fact that it was a Sephardic Jewish community, had certain uniqueness uh, and certain of its own customs. Um, the in in fact the the uh, official sitter uh, used by the it was called the Zchut Yosef sitter it uh, was the accepted text in the Rose community is actually a slightly different uh, nusach a slightly different uh, liturgy of of, of the sitter uh, than the standard accepted Sephardic sitters so in many ways they were. Um, a bit different and unique. Now, Some of the prominent rabbis of the community was mainly from, like I said, the long line of rabbis of the Yisrael family. The patriarch of that family was a fellow by the name of Reb Moshe Yisrael from Tzfas, who became the rabbi in Rhodes in the 1700s, way earlier. And his descendants served as rabbis and community leaders right up until the Second World War. Now it was common in that time, the Jewish communities of the Ottoman Empire and Italy, for hundreds of years, the communities of Tzfas and Yerushalayim would send emissaries to raise funds known as Shadarim, Shluchadur the, Rahmana, the fundraisers. They These these um, Sephardic Shadarim from Tzfas and Yerushalayim preceded their Ashkenazi counterparts by hundreds of years. The Ashkenazim only arrived at the end of the 18th century, and the, the, the Sephardic system had already been going on for two, three hundred years before that. And many times, the local communities who would receive these fundraisers fundraising for the community for their communities back in 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 and Sfas so they would hire these shadaram, these these uh these uh, collectors to stay and serve as rabbis in the communities because the ones who were fundraising were often great tammidei hachahamim great uh, Torah scholars and they would invite them to settle down in their community and and uh, and uh, and, uh and serve as their rabbi, and this was prevalent, like I said, across the empire. And Rhodes was no exception. And they did that several times. And it went it went both ways. Uh, rabbi Ezra Malchi, for instance, was a rabbi who was from a prominent uh, family, first originally from Italy, but also from Tzfas. And he becomes he on a fundraising trip. He's convinced to stay, and he pa- passes away as rabbi of Rhodes. So he's buried in the rabbinic section of the Rhodes cemetery. While others who grew up in, in, in Rhodes, they went and retired and moved to Israel, moved to the land of Israel. Um, like certain members of the Israel family, or Chaim Yehuda Yisrael and his son, who I mentioned before, who was the rabbi during the blood Libel of Mechol Yaakov uh, Yisrael. Um, so they were rabbis in the mid-19th century and both of them eventually moved to Yerushalayim and they're buried in ar So there's this very close connection, which is what I'm trying to bring out through the life stories of the rabbis, between the Rhodes- Jewish community, and the Jewish community in the land of Israel. And that, uh, that sustained them uh, for quite a bit of time as well. The, the Yisrael dynasty continues father to son with some breaks in the middle through the 1930s. Uh, two rabbis of the early 20th century, interestingly enough, of Rhodes, were Moshi Franco and Rabbi Nisim Yehuda Danon, Danon, sorry, were subsequently appointed the Rishon LeZion uh, in, in Eretz Yisrael, Following their stint in Rhodes, they were appointed, uh, Rishon Lutzion was the officially government uh, recognized by the, by the, by the Sultan's government in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Constantinople was the, as the chief rabbi. And, uh, they, these two who had formerly been rabbis in Rhodes were eventually became the Rishon Lezion in, uh, in the land of Israel. Now, later on, which I'm going to get to the, there was Italian rule in 1912. The Italian government took over. Uh, Rhodes after the war between Italy and the Ottoman Empire. And so under the Italian rule and influence, an Italian rabbi was hired in the 1930s, Rabbi Reuven Riccardo Pacefici. Uh, he was later murdered in the Holocaust. He was a rabbi in Italy later, and he was taken from there. Uh, one of the more interesting figures who found his way to Rhodes was a fellow by the name of Isaiah Sonnet, and he was born in Galicia. And lived for a time in Ludge. He's a Polish Jew, but he gets an education in Italy, and from there he's appointed to head the rabbinical seminary that had been established in Rhodes, under the auspices of the Italian government. This seminary was not exactly an Orthodox rabbinical seminary; it's an understatement. It was partially funded by the Italian government with the express purpose of spreading Italian culture. So, due to the Itali- later on, due to the Italian fascist racial laws, which I'm going to get to also, he immigrates to the U.S. This Isaiah Son uh, or Sonne. In, immigrates to the United States in 1940. He moves to Cincinnati, where he taught at the flagship of Reform Judaism in Hebrew Union College. So that's uh, some of the uh, rabbinical figures in Rhodes over the years. Now, in the late 1800s, there were six shuls in the Jewish quarter that was known as La Juderia, which was um, uh, which was Ladino for the Jewish street or Jewish quarter. Um the Jews in, in, in Rhodes spoke primarily Ladino, the, the Sephardic uh, Jews of the Mediterranean, North Africa, their their version of a Jewish language, which is based on Spanish and Hebrew letters. Um, and also they, they spoke Greek, Ottoman Turkish, later on Italian. Uh, so they, the, the, I called it shul's, it was probably called Bate Knesset, or synagogues, definitely not shul's. Um, they established schools, there were yeshivas, there was more than one yeshiva, there was a couple of yeshivas for the youth uh, as well, that were built by the community and served by the rabbis of the community. So it was a very, very prestigious and had a full institution, it was prominent, it was a wealthy community for a long time. Uh, the most prominent of these schools is the only one that has survived down to this day, it is called the Kahal, the Beit Knesset Kahal Shalom. Uh, today, it is, also contains a museum about the Rhodes Jewish community in a side room. It's the oldest shul in all of Greece that's still standing. It's almost 500 years old, a magnificent, beautiful edifice. Um, the Alliance, the French uh, Jewish organization that, uh, and that uh, wanted to establish uh, schools and, and culture and education throughout uh, the Jewish world, Wherever there was needed. So they had, the Allianz established a school there in the late 1800s also. So there's a lot of uh, activity uh, happening during there at the time. The Jewish cemetery there is also very old, actually, and very well preserved. In the 1930s, the Italian fascist government forced the Jewish community to uproot the entire cemetery because it was in the middle of town. They wanted to use it to make a park and they gave them a new piece of land further out and all the everything was reburied there. So the cemetery is still well preserved until till today. So at the turn of the century, it was a relatively large Jewish community. Um, several thousand Jews lived there. The Italian occupation begins in 1912, and many Jews start to emigrate after the Italians take over. You go to Turkey, They go to the United States, to Seattle, like I said, Africa, surprisingly, to the Belgian Congo, to South Africa, and to what was then known as Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, northern Rhodesia. There's an economic downturn on the island, economy's changing, and there's, they're looking for oppor- economic opportunities. Also, they didn't fare as well under the Italians, especially following the fascist takeover, takeover of Mussolini in, uh, in 1922. They did much better under the Ottomans. In general, Jews throughout history have done better under multi-ethnic empires than nationalistic states, but that's another topic for another time. So, the, like I said, the Italian government eventually decides to establish a rabbinical seminary there. These in general, a heavy uh, emphasis on Italian influence in the Jewish community, in sports, culture, education. There's a modernization, to a certain extent, secularization within the Jewish community there as well during the interwar period. Um, so we come to the Holocaust. So it was under, under Italian control, under Mussolini for most of the wars. So the Mussolini government cooperated with the Nazis to a certain extent. Uh, they, they had anti-Jewish decrees, but nothing really worse than that. They did not put them in, in ghettos, and they definitely did not deport them to uh, death camps uh, for extermination. So, But when the Mussolini government falls in 1943, and the British tried to seize the island, the Germans preempted it by occupying the island directly to keep the British Navy out of uh, that part of the Mediterranean and further away from Greece. So now they're under direct Nazi occupation. And then of course things get worse for the remaining Jews. Most of the Jews had already immigrated emigrated from the island and some even by illegal immigration to the not so far away Palestine. It was you know not, not not relatively easy but a little less difficult to get there. Um, so by the end of July 1944. Now think about how late this is in 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 the in the story of of the Holocaust. End of July 1944. It's already, you know, we're talking about, okay, by the time, you know, by the time they get to Auschwitz, which I'll get to, so, so I'll continue the story first. So over 1,600 Jews, which is basically all the remaining Jews left in Rhodes, are rounded up and deported by boat to Greece. And we think of the train as the symbol of the deportations. Uh, so it has become in the collective memory of the Jewish people. But for many, it was boats for the Jews of, of, uh, of, of here, of, of uh, it's for, not for many, for some, for Jews of Rhodes, also for Norway. Norwegian Jews were transported by boat as well. It's another example. By the way, I mean, there's many Jews who were transported there by truck. It wasn't only trains. But the train has become a symbol. Either way, so they're brought by boat. Um, interestingly, the Turkish consul and in Rhodes at the time, Salachtin Ulkuman saved 42 Jewish families, which ended up being a couple of hundred Jews by providing them with Turkish papers, Turkish citizenship. So he was recognized actually as a Hasid Umotolam, a righteous among the nations. On the way out, the ship uh, taking these uh, the, Jew, the Rhodes Jewish community docked at the island of Kos, another Greek island to pick up um, a few hundred Jews who were there, the entire Jewish community of Kos to deport them as well. So, this again, there was how many, there was 100, 200 Jews in the entire island of Kos, little Greek island. And this is a manifestation of the sheer horror of the totality of the final solution that not even one Jew can be left behind. The Nazis are going to find every single one and make sure to deport them. So, they arrive in Greece. Several weeks later, they're deported by train on a week long journey to Auschwitz. Almost all of them are gassed upon arrival. Only about 150 out of over 1,600 survived. Again, this is at the end of August 1944. This is after the deportations of Hungarian Jews had already ceased. It was after the last Jews of the Ludge Ghetto had already been deported. In all likelihood, the Rhodes Jews were the last large deportation of Jews to Auschwitz. Not long afterwards the crematorium were blown up by the SS, and the camp was evacuated in January, during these days actually, January 17th the evacuation started and the death march started, so we're on January 20th now, so that's um, it's, uh, it's during this time. Um, so the uh, that's essentially the end of the Jewish community in Rhodes, there's almost no Jews living in Rhodes today, about 40 Jews living in Rhodes today, it's the only time the shul is used there, the kahal shalom is used by Jewish tourists or descendants of the Rhodes Jewish community who come to visit, but that's not the last piece of Jewish history in Rhodes because in 1949, the signing of the armistice um, between to end the 1948 war of independence between uh, Israel and Jordan was signed on Rhodes, a, a, on the island of Rhodes. Moshe Dayan sat at one side of the table, and Abdullah Tell of Jordan sat at the other side of the table, and they signed a map and marked it, and those borders are still dip- disputed till this very day. So that took place on Rhodes as well. So I just want to uh, mention for a couple of minutes the 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 uh, emigrant uh, communities of Rhodes Jewry, uh, mainly Rhodesia, because it's the most interesting. Seattle, I did discuss in the Seattle City episode a, l- a little bit. Um, so they go to Rhodesia also, also to the Belgian Congo. It's interesting. Um, so the, uh, this is kind of like a bookend. They spoke about South Africa Jews a couple of weeks ago. So this is uh, the Rhodesia Jews uh, too. Today it's Zimbabwe, of course. It's not in, in Rhodesia, in Southern Africa. And in some ways, it's similar to the story of uh, South Africa Jews. Uh, the Jews of Rhodes only came in the 1930s to, to Rhodesia. Russian and Lithuanian Jews arrived at the end of the 19th century. So they were there much earlier. So eventually, there's an established Ashkenazic and Sephardic community, each with their own synagogues. By the late 1930s, German Jews are arriving in Rhodesia, fleeing Nazi Germany. So you have German Jews, uh, Russian and Lithuanian Jews and Rhodes Jews, all living in Rhodesia. In the 1960s, they keep on coming. Uh, Jews arrived from the Belgian Congo after the decolonization there, uh, many of whom were originally from Rhodes, so that strengthens the Rhodes uh, contingent in in, uh, Rhodesia, also from England, from South Africa. By the early 1960s, the Rhodesia Jewish community, later Zimbabwe Jewish community, peaks at 7,000 Jews. Unfortunately, there's very high rates of assimilation, intermarriage, um, I believe Stanley Fisher, the former uh, head of the Israel Bank of Israel, was brought up in Rhodesia. I should have double-checked that before I made that statement, but I believe so. Um, Rhodesia is named, like I said, for Cecil Rhodes. So it's, it's, it was a place of British imperialism during the scramble for Africa uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th centuries. It's the Belgian Congo. It's, you know, I grew up uh, reading uh, Tintin. And uh, he, he's, he's Belgian, and, and there's a whole book, I think, about him going to the Congo. And European imperialism at that time was quite racist, uh, social Darwinist, uh, you know, his racial extermination. The German imperialism at the time uh, perpetrated the first genocide of uh, the 20th century, the Herero genocide of 1905. And there's certain parallels, interestingly enough, between the Herero genocide of 1905, perpetrated by German imperialists, uh, to the Holocaust also, but that's also another story. Either way, when majority black rule was re- was assumed in 1980, following the long racist war and international pressure, so many of the Jews uh, emigrated heading to South Africa and to Israel. Today there's uh, very few Jews left in uh, Zimbabwe. Um, so that's uh, kind of the end of the story of, of Jewish settlement there as well. So this is Yehuda Geber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at for questions, common sources, tours, trips, lectures, and sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at @Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.